0: Welcome to the panel discussion, Every Side of Cyber Building a Nation-Scale Quick Reaction Force, sponsored by Raytheon. Here's today's moderator, Jason Miller.
1: Welcome to the discussion. Today my guests are Ben Cotton, the President and CEO and Founder of SciTech Services, Mark Orlando, the Chief Technology Officer for Cyber Protection Solutions at Raytheon, Dylan Owen, a Senior Manager for Cyber Services at Raytheon, and Dr. Shujane Thompson, a vice president and partner with the cyber and biometrics practice at IBM. Welcome to the discussion today. Let me set a little context for our conversation. It's been almost three years since the White House issued Presidential Policy of Directive 41 and its corresponding Cyber Incident Response Plan. If you remember, PPD 41 outlined some key concepts around defining what a cyber incident is and even what a major cyber incident meant. It also provided guiding principles for incident response. From that PPD, the Homeland Security Department developed a National Cyber Incident Response Plan, providing even more details about the activities and the lead federal agencies for each of those activities. But what PPD 41 and the NCIR are, are are reactive documents, plans coming after someone or an organization has been victimized by a cyber attack. What is missing is how agencies can get ahead of the attack through proactive threat hunting and a more strategic response. Over the last few years, with the evolution of cyber tools and capabilities, most notably, the sharing of threat intelligence that has enabled agencies to do more to get ahead of the cyber threats. In fact, in the 2018 National Cybersecurity Strategy, the White House specifically calls out the use of th- cyber threat hunting capabilities, saying the government, quote, will be able to assess the security of its data by reviewing contractor risk management practices and adequately testing, hunting, censoring, and responding to incidents on contractor systems. Contracts with federal departments and agencies will be drafted to authorize such activities for the purpose of improving cybersecurity. There are several benefits from this proactive stance agencies are taking to to address cyber threats, including reducing damage to the organization, improving the speed of response. So what should agencies know about moving toward this proactive model? Well, again, that's where my guests come in. My guests are Ben Cotton, the President, CEO, and Founder of SciTech Services, Mark Orlando, the Chief Technology Officer for Cyber Protection Solutions at Raytheon, Dylan Owen, a senior manager for cyber services at Raytheon, and Dr. Shu-Jane Thompson, a vice president and partner with cyber and biometrics practice at IBM. Dylan, let me start with you, just to get some basics for our discussion. When we talk about incident and threat hunting, that has really evolved over the last decade, but let's give a, a, a basic definition of what we're talking about here.
2: Yeah, sure, so, you know, to kind of start off, um, what it is not is just responding to an alert that your system is already tuned to, right? So threat hunting is looking for suspicious or malicious activity in your network that your current tools don't currently detect. So it could be you know you've read a blog and there's a piece of intelligence around a piece of malware or an actor uh, technique or procedure, and you go looking for that on your network because your IDS, your antivirus, or your SIM may not already be able to detect that. And so that's kind of the basic definition of threat hunting.
1: It feels like when we talk about threat hunting, it, it, you're 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 trying to discover something that you haven't discovered before. So, if you're reading about something, is it the fact that these antivirus or tools, these these intrusion detection prevention tools, are just haven't been updated yet? Like, like I guess help me kind of parse that a little bit. Yeah,
2: that's part of it. But you know, there, there's so many people out there doing research, and you know, you can never know, and and these companies can never know about all of the threats. So, just because somebody else may have discovered something, you know, number one, it doesn't mean that. Your tool vendors know about it and number two that doesn't mean that that activity doesn't exist on your network and you just aren't aware of it so you weren't aware of that technique so now that you are you can go and look for it on your network and see if you can find it
1: let me bring in some of the other panelists for this because the other piece of this is this the idea of cyber threat intelligence and the importance that has been over the last if you will you know, three, five, seven years, we see the development of not only the intelligence community, but the cyber, the CTIC, the Cyber Intelligence Threat Sharing Center, and then DHS has also provided a lot of the cyber intelligence. Where does that fit in? I'll just open up to the panel, the cyber intelligence, is that why threat hunting is, if you will, becoming more, has evolved?
0: I'll, I'll take that then, one. Ben, sure. jump in. Um, I would say cyber threat intelligence is a key ingredient for hunting. It's not the only part of it but I think we've seen cyber threat intelligence and particularly intelligence sharing, which you mentioned, uh, has come a really long way in the last couple of years, um, particularly with efforts spearheaded by DHS and other agencies. We've seen a lot more intel sharing going on. Uh, We've seen a lot more formality and process wrapped around gathering intelligence, sharing it with the community, making sure it gets into the hands of defenders uh, to do things like proactive threat hunting. Um, Really, that's just us trying to be smarter about what it is we're looking for and understanding what our adversaries' capabilities are, and then that gives us a better idea of what we're looking for when we go out and try to hunt for those threats. If
3: I may add to that, I think threat intelligence is really is a form of from data to information to insight, and then from the insight, then we derive the intelligence, and hopefully that intelligence can help us to, you know, launch actions against the bad actors. And, you know, as as of today, our infosphere, really had no boundaries. And so for us to be the game the intelligence, it really required a sharing of intelligence. And this is why, as an example, in IBM, we have the X-Force Threat Database, six to seven terabytes of threat data, helping hunters like you and I to be able to game the basic intelligence so we can then build from that foundation to be able to get to the bad actors sooner and faster and in a more smart way, if you would.
1: So, so, so maybe let me bring Ben into this conversation as well. When you look at what factors are are make good th- uh, threat hunting, and, and and then become turn that into an incident response. What are some of those things that people should consider as they're developing these teams? A lot of uh, security operation centers across government are really starting to look at this.
4: Absolutely, and so the uh, the principle that that we like to follow is forensics first. So, that is closely coupled with with your ability to see more is to know more, right? So if you take the threat intel data and then you apply it to a forensics process that has visibility on every single aspect of what's going on on an endpoint, then you're able to ascertain if those threats do exist inside of your environment. And the trick to that is to do that in a a timely fashion so that you're looking simultaneously across all of your endpoints and you're not focused in a narrow Lane to where you miss those threats that exist on other other endpoints
2: or other aspects of your of your network. I'd like to add to that, you know, Dylan. and I think Ben's key point here is visibility. If you can't see things on your network, whether it's at the endpoint or at that network level, you'll never find those threats. So, you know, if there's a threat that takes advantage of of uh, you know uh, web traffic and you're not collecting your web proxy logs, you'll never detect it. So, and that's one of the big things we find, not only at government agencies, but commercial customers, is just their, where they focus on their visibility and making sure they get the right level so that you can go and be an effective threat hunter on a network.
1: And so much of what the government's been doing over the last five, six, seven years is really focused on this visibility. I mean, we can look back at the Office of Personnel Management breach and, you know, the reason why the breach happened, there's several reasons, but one big one is they didn't have the visibility we know the continuous diagnostics and mitigation program has also been focused on visibility is is that really the first step to really being able to be a a quality if you will threat Is knowing what you have
2: yeah absolutely and you know there's a there's a key set of, of logs and and other technologies that you need in order to be able to do this hunting and if you're not collecting those you know you're, you're just blind to it and it makes it that much harder it's not it doesn't make it impossible but it certainly makes it much harder and much longer process to find those things than if you had the right visibility across your network and your endpoints.
4: If I could add on to that a little bit, uh, it also matters to the quality of data that you're collecting off of those endpoints. So if, if your technology stack and your security stack is based entirely on API calls into an operating system, then fundamentally your, your approach is flawed because you'll never see those things that are occurring on that endpoint because of, you know, rootkits and other obfuscation type technologies. So um, you really have to have forensics grade information coming back into your action team so that they can make very sound and accurate decisions based on that data.
1: And, and Dr. Thompson, before you jump in, let me just ask Ben to put a little finer point on this. Uh, for our audience, when you talk about API calls, w- w- I think most of us are familiar with API calls, but you're asking, you're saying that that's just the the tool hitting the network saying, okay, tell us what's happening and pulling data back, and you're saying we need to go the next level deeper?
4: So, uh, more precisely, if, uh, use Windows for an example. Um, Windows Management Interface, uh, WMI, you can create a a process by which you query the uh, WMI function on a system, and it'll return processes to you, okay? The challenge with that is that you're relying on a potentially compromised operating system to tell you what is truly there, okay? Which, you know, a rootkit will simply do the digital Jedi mind trick and say, this is not the process you're looking for, right? (laughs) So, um, the ability to have forensics-grade drivers and collection off of those endpoints, to Dylan's point, is absolutely critical when you're making um, hunting and security decisions based on data collection on your endpoints.
1: And Dr. Thompson, jump in.
3: Yeah, I, I think, you know, very well said. And you know, imagine today, any other organization out there today are using five to 16 cloud environment, and collecting the endpoint data across your enterprise, including your legacy environment. And to be able to make sense of the data, I think one very important principle here is stay away from garbage in, garbage out. And this is why the intelligence filters have ability to aggregate and correlate the information and really employ technologies such as AIs, machine learning, help you to get to the end game much faster, much more intelligently.
1: You brought up a lot of keywords there. AI, machine learning, right? Uh, and We're gonna get to that. Cloud, you brought up. We can't, we can't have a conversation without that. But before we go into that, um, are, are there certain mistakes you're seeing, are there certain as you talk to government clients or private sector clients, are there certain mistakes that you guys see time and again? Uh,
0: uh, um, Mark, you want to jump in on that? Sure, I, I think one mistake that we see, and, and this is certainly specific to incident response and threat hunting, but also it's really across all of network defense, uh, which is over-reliance on technology. So we just talked about things like AI and machine learning, and, and I think those are very valuable tools. Um, but I think in some cases, when we talk about tools, there's an assumption that if I buy enough technology and I deploy enough tools, um, that I'm kind of checking the boxes in terms of everything I need to do for network defense. And really what we've seen is uh, there's a lot of waste there, there's a lot of duplicative technologies, uh, it becomes a personnel and training issue where now you need to hire lots of people to operate all of these tools. So I think that's uh, something that we certainly see, and it's not unique to uh, the public sector, it's really across the board.
1: That's a great point, the duplication, I think, I've talked to several vendors over the last couple of years, and they've said many times, uh, well, you buy this tool, then you buy that tool, and then you don't realize that the first tool you bought had the same capabilities as that second tool you bought. So, of course, I throw it back to them and go, isn't that your fault? And they go, well, yeah, it is, actually. <laughs> so it's actually a very interesting kind of a conversation that way. Are you seeing agencies recognizing that they have these tools in place that they can take more advantage of? Or is that something that, for instance, something Raytheon or IBM or, or SciTech Services can help them kind of understand, like? you know, you already, you already do those things, but it's over here, you just have to click that box to turn
0: it on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I know that's something that we spend quite a lot of time doing is helping people optimize what they already have and eliminate uh, duplicative tools, duplicative processes, kind of streamline investments that they've already made. Um, and, and it can be a process. I mean, uh, you know, procurement cycles and licensing cycles. I mean, these are kind of annual and in some cases you know, some cases, they go out multiple years. So uh, to, to walk back some of those things and to really take a hard look at some of the decisions that have been made, expenditures that have been made, um, it, it can be a very time-consuming process. But we do spend a lot of time focusing on getting the right visibility, not overdoing it with tools and technology.
2: And, and that's another key thing. Um, you know, besides technology is data, right? So a lot of customers, are, you know, whether it's in the private sector or the public sector, they look at just, well, I'm going to collect all my data. And that's really you know, not the best way to go about it, you need to have a reason for that data. Now, some of it's compliance and we understand that, but from a threat hunting perspective and an incident response perspective, you know, you should have a use case around the data you're collecting. So if I'm gonna collect my web proxy data, what am I going to be specifically looking for? If I'm going to collect, you know, system event data from all of my servers, why am I doing that? So. Because a lot of these, you know, your sims and other things, they're now licensed by the amount of data you bring in. So if you're bringing useless data in, you're just wasting money. So you want that data to all, you know, to have a use case on why do you want it, what is going to, how is it, is it going to be relevant to your threat hunting or your incident response operations? And then, you know, you can prioritize how you bring it in, and and then that goes into your procurement cycles and having the right tool and making the best use of the money in those limited funds that you have in your enterprise. Ben, you know.
4: In addition to what uh, uh, my partners here have, have articulated, we're also seeing an over-reliance on castle, castle and moat type thought processes where if I build a deep enough moat and a high enough castle wall, I'm gonna keep people out. And what that results in is an underpreparedness for when things fail, right? And this is part of the hunt, hunt uh, discussion as well. But if you don't plan for when those security tools fail. And let's face it, there's a certain level of efficacy across any security stack. And each security stack is unique by that blend of technologies as as they've been implemented. Um, But if you don't plan for failure inside of your cyber environment, then once that happens to you, and it will happen, um, you waste money, you waste time, and that exposes your organization to a, an exceptional amount of risk in today's legislative environment.
3: Absolutely. I think also a lot of time people are talking about automations when we talk about threat hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, the the automation can misleading the, you know, the traceability and the forensic of the certain type of threats. I think you know human intelligence is still you know, really need to be played in the core, and the combination of artificial intelligence with human intelligence, then we can really get to the end game. And I think you were right on. I mean, the, the truth of matter here is that you can put in uh, automation, you can really bring in the right data into the, the mix. The key here is when we are in action to respond to an incident, the people, has to come into play. And they have to have the skill sets, experience, and have to have the eyes, and which is really built from their knowledge, if you were, to be able to really you know, uh, triage into the problem domain.
1: I think you make a great point, because a lot of times there's this hope. We always talk about the silver bullet in cybersecurity. And really, there is none. The silver bullet in cybersecurity is the people. It's not the next great technology. In this case, we've talked a lot about AI or machine learning. Um, there, there's also, I want to go back to something that Dylan talked about, which is the use case. Uh, But first, we're going to take a quick break. and come back, we have plenty to talk about, technology and people at the very least. Uh, You're listening to the panel discussion, Every Side of Cyber, Building a Nation-Scale Quick Reaction Force, sponsored by Raytheon, on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
5: Do you hear that? That's the sound of threat hunters using AI and machine learning to monitor your networks, leveraging decades of expertise to protect your critical systems, attacking the hack. So, your workforce doesn't have to. Because when you partner with Raytheon, we focus on your cyber defense. So, the only sound you hear is your agency focusing on its mission Raytheon, securing every side of cyber. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion Every Side of Cyber, Building a Nation
1: Scale Quick Reaction Force, sponsored by Raytheon on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today, Ben Cotton, the President, CEO, and Founder of SciTech Services, Mark Orlando, the Chief Technology Officer for Cyber Protection Solutions at Raytheon, Dylan Owen, a Senior Manager for Cyber Services at Raytheon, and Dr. Shujane Thompson, a Vice President and Partner with Cyber and Biometrics Practice at IBM. Before break, we were talking a lot about the process and what is cyber threat hunting and why does it matter and, and, and how does incident response fit into it. And Dylan, you brought up a very interesting point about use cases. And I want to dig into that just a little bit more, because one of the things I think frustrates non-cyber people is this idea of, well, just do this. And they don't really understand what this is. And, and so let's dig into that use case. When you talk about, make sure you have a use case for the data collect, go into that in a little more detail and help me understand what you mean by that.
2: Yeah, sure. So So again, it's What kind of data do you want to collect and what are you going to do with that data and how does it help you do incident response or threat hunting? So, you know, for instance, if you're bringing in uh, NetFlow data and there's a lot of different elements uh, in that flow and some of those aren't really that relevant or that useful from a threat hunting or an incident response perspective, don't collect those. Right, because the other part of the equation here is your SIM license nowadays is going to be done by the amount of data you're putting into it. So, you know, if your license is only this big, but your data is this big, you have to make a tough choice anyway. So you might as well look at those things that are the most relevant to how your security operations work, the, the threats that you want to look for or be alerted on and bring that data down to those. So if it doesn't fit into that use case of I can use this data to either detect a threat, Automatically, or do you? Or it won't be useful to me from an incident response perspective. Don't collect it. But
1: don't I want to look at all the threats? Do not I want to protect everything?
2: Yeah, but not all data has the same level of value for doing that. Okay. Right. So, so
1: you mentioned uh, a use case. Walk me through one, maybe a recent one. And obviously, if you need to anonymize it, feel free.
2: Yeah. So um, you know, we had a customer that, um, from a visibility perspective. They were bringing in um, just a ton of DNS traffic, and DNS traffic can be great from a threat hunting perspective, but they were just bringing in too much of it from too many of their sources, right? And it was, again, it was eating up their Splunk license and was making hunting actually harder because you know, the way DNS works internally, it has to go from hop to hop to hop to finally your external DNS server and then out, right? And so they were getting all of those internal hops and just too much data. And so what we ended up doing was taking out most of the internal hops and just using their external DNS because from a threat hunting perspective, they were interested in what was going out my network, right? So those internal ones weren't really providing the level of relevancy that they needed. So the, th- the threat was coming from the outside, not necessarily the inside though, you can have threats inside. Right, and it was also trying to get back out, right? So once, once, a, once a computer gets compromised, right, they wanna move on objectives and then exfiltrate data and they need external DNS in order to do that. So all that internal DNS traffic while it was it was mildly useful from a, a complete usefulness against their licensing of their sim it was just too much okay so once we pulled that out not only did they gain licensing or capacity back on their sim for other more relevant logs but they got the stuff that was the most important to them and it made them work quicker because they didn't have to wade through you know the, the the packet went from here to here to here to here it was just, this was the part that was the most, exp- uh, most important, that external resolution, and they were able to find threats faster that way. Well, I, I think
3: this is, this is a common challenge for most of the organization here, is you only have limited resources, okay, and limited uh, tool sets or limited capacity to be able to ingest the data, uh, the data sets. I want to make sure I call to the caution here is that our threat environment is so dynamic. It changes, you know, so rapidly. Even though at times when we, you know, home into certain type of threat uh, 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 hunt that we may have to sacrifice certain data sets. But I think this cannot be the norm. And this is what the challenges of doing the effective threat hunt here is to have that agility to be able to ingest the necessary data at the right time. And so then we can gain that intelligence and insight to the current threat environment. I think another item is very important here is that even though we understand the threat, we would we'll be able to de- design the countermeasure for, you know, overcoming that particular threat. This, the incident response really requires the organization to understand what the nature of the countermeasure so they can then deploy that countermeasure effectively as part of the incident response, if you would.
4: And if I might add on to that, you know, <coughs> to both Dylan and uh, uh, the doctor's uh, comments here, there's uh, the automatic collection of data by, ne- <clears throat> by, by necessity requires a, an automatic correlation of the data. So from an example standpoint, uh, we had a client that had a very good IDS system in place and they were receiving IDS indicators, they had a compromise, but it was taking them uh, 24 hours to correlate that ids back to a person, back to a process, back to the endpoint on which it uh, actually occurred. So it's about the right type of data, it's about the correlation of that data in an automated fashion, and it's also about search. So as we talk about hunting, at the very root of hunting is your ability to search across your network and to be able to do that very very quickly. And it's not just about processes, and it's not just about network connections. It's also about what is existing on those hard drives, even down into the unallocated space of those hard drives. You know, more sophisticated actors can actually uh, customize the addressing of their malware into the unpartitioned space on a, on a hard drive. So. <clears throat> A good hunting team not only has the automated collection piece, but also has the ability to pivot and then simultaneously ask very complex uh, questions across their entire environment and get that data back extremely quickly.
0: If I can just add something Mark. briefly, too, just to, to key in on, on some things that were said. You, you know, I, I really want to call attention to this idea um, that there, I think, has been a fundamental shift in the last. 10, 15 years from this idea that we need to collect everything because you don't know what's going to be useful at any given time um, to, to now, you know, modern IT enterprises, there is so much data and it's uh, computing is so ubiquitous now that um, to, to Dr. Thompson's point, you really do have to make sacrifices about what you're going to collect, um, you know make a cogent argument as to why you need to collect it, why you're going to make the investment to store it, process it, present it to a team. Uh, And I think uh, we as service providers, consultants, analysts, in order to maintain credibility with our customers, uh, we have to now be able to provide a level of transparency that, again, I think 10 to 15 years ago, we could all kind of hide behind this concept of uh, threat hunting and security and instant response. It's this really complicated sort of magic that happens that uh, the layperson just can't understand. That's no longer acceptable. So I think not only do you have to be able to make those decisions about what compromises you're going to make, you have to be able to explain those decisions. You have to be able to show value, show results for what you're getting.
1: Let me bring in Dr. Thompson because one of the things you brought up on the last segment was this idea of AI, adding AI machine learning capabilities, but also automation has now come up again. These are considered in many regards emerging technologies to the federal community and probably to the, to the broader private sector. What role are, or what hope do we have or, or, or that these types of technologies will, will make threat hunting? I'm about easier but at least better <laughs> faster maybe not even cheaper
3: right i think the hope is there and it's already proven because as we already talked about several of my peers here talk about the large um, amount of data and complexity of the data really is far beyond a human intelligence can process in time so the velocity the scale right and the accuracies so we need to heavily leaning on machine learning artificial intelligence, and then also take it to the next level is artificial intelligence of the artificial intelligence, because once you run the first algorithms, you may find the most, you know, uh, know, so-called first-hand data. Having said all that, the data amount may not necessarily, you know, triage into the actionable intelligence. And therefore, we're talking about artificial intelligence of the artificial intelligence. The automation applied in two ways. One is to leveraging the artificial intelligence to be able to expedite the filter of the common threat so we can then automatically process those common threat with non-proven countermeasures. Then we can then leave the you know the best people and the best resource to focusing on those abnormalities that require deeper hunting activities. And so to me Automation applied to both of the ruling out that 80% of the so-called noise level of the threat and then allowing this 20% of, of the uh, uh, focus into this really challenging threat require hunting resources to really spare the time and energy to find the final answers.
1: I really hope we're not going to get into the AI of AI as a new buzzword in the federal market. And I hope you just didn't <laughs> coin that. I'm going to look at you. Ben, jump, jump in as well, because when you talk about forensics, right, that, that's another level down of the data and understanding what you have. Where does the automation AI play a role there?
4: So <clears throat> automation and forensics, you know, remember, we, we think forensics first on all this data collection. Um, the analysis of, of that data, um, I like to think of it as weeding the wheat from the chaff, so that you can get 100% of your human capital gray matter focused on the problem very, very quickly. And I, I think uh, there, there's a consensus here with the panel that that uh, human gray matter, as good as AI, as good as ML will get, uh, human gray matter is never going to be eliminated from the equation. And uh, so the, from a forensic standpoint, the automation, the AI, the ML is leveraged to uh, sort that wheat from the chaff. Get down to what's important very quickly and focus on that.
1: And really, Dylan, what, what Ben and, and Dr. Thompson are really talking about here is the people side, which we'll get to in a little bit. But the people have to have the time to look at the data that is most important, most complex. To meet, we'll go back to your use cases. Uh, is that happening? Do you see it with customers? Do you see it internally at Raytheon that, that you're getting that to the right, the right data to the right people?
2: Yeah, it, it's definitely starting to turn. That way, you know they're making these types of decisions um, using that automation to make your organization more efficient on those, you know, that 80% of the you know more commodity-level threats that you could use, you know, an automated playbook, let's say, to to do the remediation or deploy the countermeasure, and that adding that level of efficiency allows your team to then focus on those things. So because you're never going to hire more people, right? You're never going to out hire the threat. So how do you make yourselves with the resources you have? that much more efficient so you have the time to focus on those things that, you know, a hunt may take you two, three, four hours to actually complete, right? So how do you free up that time to do that when you have all these fire drills going on over here? And that's where the automation and AI and ML can can help, is freeing your resources up. Because again, you're never gonna hire, you know, a thousand more people to tackle this problem in, in an organization.
1: And Mark, let me bring you in because one of the things that as we're kind of going through this, the automation, the AI, these tools also can help you close the more simple, if there's ever such a thing, cyber vulnerabilities. Uh, hey, Microsoft, hey, Adobe, hey, Salesforce has put out a new patch. Automatically, I, I can I can set the automation to do that. Is that that's a, the other benefit of these technologies, too.
0: I think so, and I think Dr. Thompson alluded to that a few minutes ago, trying to, to close out some of those more low-level issues using uh, these kinds of technologies. And um, I, I do want to, at some point, show my face in the industry again, so I, I won't say that patching and addressing vulnerabilities is is easy or no. or necessary necessarily something that can be easily automated. But I do think that that's kind of, uh, as an industry, what we're looking to do is take some of the things that are repetitive in nature, some of the things that are relatively low level and try to automate those out as much as possible.
1: On the other hand, I'll just kind of play a little devil's advocate on the patching side, the move to the cloud, the cloud, we gotta bring it up, uh, that is part of that the understanding that if you have a, an application, you have a system in the cloud, then you don't have to worry about that patching because the patching is done by your cloud service provider. So does that make it easier? Maybe I'll just open up to the entire panel. Dr. Thompson was shaking her head, or kind of shaking her head.
3: <laughs> well, we, as a cloud well, provider at IBM, <laughs> well, I think cloud services offer patch services. Okay, I think this is this is important to really understand. Here is like like I say, we don't have unlimited resources. Like my peer say,s here. And I think what we need to do here is to commit it to let the expert do their job. And so if we are employing the cloud services, for security there are many security services available. They are patching system administration services available that would then free up you as an organization to really handle those lower tier work you know, uh, workload, if you will. So then you can better focusing on focusing on how you defend your enterprise. So I think there's some opportunity that we can do. In addition to that here is when we talk about artificial intelligence or threat intelligence, shilling would also help to eliminate the need for always, you know, uh, require high-end cyber security professionals to do the job because, you know, we can use those intelligence to help them to supplement their skill sets, if you would. In today's environment, the great shortage of cyber, cyber uh, talent really require that type of uh, capability to you know to help.
1: Let's continue down this path around the cloud and some of these shared resources. I think a lot of federal agencies not only are moving to the cloud. There's uh, new data coming out at the end of June from uh, uh, Office of Management Budget. But then you also have a big push recently from OMB and now GSA on shared services. How does that change threat hunting, threat detection, incident response? is that get another layer of complexity or does it make it easier? D- Dylan's shaking his head.
2: Yeah, way, way, way more complex because there's so many more people in the loop now, right? You got, you know, whether you're in AWS or Azure or IBM's cloud or whoever's cloud, you now have another party to worry about and are they going to provide you the right logs and the level of visibility that you need to do your thing or, you know, if, if, if you suspect a compromise on a machine, you know, kind of to Ben's point on doing the forensics, some of these cloud providers don't let you get that level of, of visibility into the platform, right? You're, you have your application, and that's your application, and that's all you see. What happens, in you know, kind of the mark. What happens in the background is magic. We just provided you this platform <laughs> for you to put it on, and you get no visibility. So if something were to happen, you're now reliant on them to provide you data, and they may or may not. Some of it's depending on your contract, on, on how they provide their service. So there's a, a whole <laughs> level of complexity that happens when you get into the cloud. I was just going
1: to bring that up, the contracting piece. Uh, but but Ben, jump in.
4: Yeah, if I could add on to that, you know, there, I see a common misperception both in the public and the private sector that by moving to the cloud, you're mitigating your risk, you're, you're making things safer for your environment, when, as Dylan mentioned, um, almost the opposite is true. What you're really doing is increasing your attack surface. Okay, Because where before, um, that infrastructure that you now, now have in the cloud was behind your firewall, was behind your protective measures, uh, now all of a sudden it's wide open to whoever can hit that IP around the world. Okay. But, but let me
1: jump in because because one of the promises of the cloud that we hear time and again in the community is, but when if I buy IBM, IBM is much smarter than my my security operations center. IBM has much more resources than my security operations center, so they're inherently going to do a better job because their stock price depends on them doing a better job than me, agency X, who maybe can find somebody who maybe is the person hasn't been a systems administrator for 35 years and is still, you know. So how do you balance that? Because that, that, the promise of the cloud is, the yes, bigger tech service, but better people, better technology.
4: Right. Well,
1: All of you want to jump in on that so, the, so quickly, and, and, and then we'll go to break That is and,
4: part of the misconception. So it, a good deal of that depends upon how you're actually engaging with that cloud provider. So if the cloud provider like IBM is actually doing the infrastructure as a service to you, um, that's one thing. But if you are putting your own infrastructure up in a virtual environment, uh, you have not mitigated any of those threats or the challenges that you have on managing a network. That were usually on-prem. Now that were usually like, on-prem. Now they're just yeah. up in the cloud. Um, if you're using it as a SaaS platform, where you just have a- access to an application, uh, you really have no control over the security aspects of that application. And you're relying entirely on that provider to be um, you know, 100% bulletproof on that. MARK right. And then Mark, you want
1: to jump in? So we're going to take a break. When we come back, you can get the first word on that next segment. You're listening to the panel discussion, Every Side of Cyber, Building a Nation-Scale Quick Reaction Force, sponsored by Raytheon on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
5: Do you hear that? That's the sound of threat hunters using AI and machine learning to monitor your networks, leveraging decades of expertise to protect your critical systems, attacking the hack so your workforce doesn't have to. Because when you partner with Raytheon, we focus on your cyber defense. So the only sound you hear is your agency focusing on its mission. Raytheon, securing every side of cyber.
1: Welcome back, you're listening to the panel discussion, Every Side of Cyber, building a nation-scale quick reaction force, sponsored by Raytheon, on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today, Ben Cotton, the President, CEO, and Founder of SciTech Services, Mark Orlando, the Chief Technology Officer for Cyber Protection Solutions at Raytheon, Dylan Owen, a Senior Manager for Cyber Services at Raytheon, and Dr. Shu-Jane Thompson, a Vice President and Partner with the Cyber Biometrics Practice at IBM. During the last segment, we kind of, I, I pulled out the cloud information and all of a sudden it really got you guys going a little bit, but we had to take a quick break. So Mark, you were just about to jump into the discussion and it was around whether or not the cloud is making it easier, harder, What what's the impact it's having on cyber threat hunting?
0: I think it certainly makes some things easier or can make some things easier on the infrastructure side, but moving your infrastructure from one place to another or shifting to the cloud doesn't absolve you from understanding your threat model. And I think one of the things that as defenders we sometimes overlook is that your threat model simply changes when you move to the cloud. For example, you need to start being concerned with things like API keys and making sure those are secured. Uh, it's not generally a, a huge concern in the enterprise uh, traditionally, but now we have to worry about who's getting access to these applications and the data that's inside of them. A lot of the breaches we've seen that involve cloud infrastructures are due to poor API uh, key security. So really just understanding uh, the security and the incident response implications of moving to the cloud um, you, know, you don't get out of that simply by shifting infrastructure to a cloud environment. You can't just
1: write in the contract that says, you shall protect my data? I don't think that's worked for us yet. Oh, okay. but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why not? Just do it. Uh, what, one of the things when we talk about the cloud model, I think that's also important, is around this concept of risk. And I think, uh, Mark, you brought it up, just understand your risk. And, and the risk shifts, but you're not absolved of the risk either. So, Dylan, also bring up... Do people do, do agencies, do private sector organizations, are they understanding that, hey, just because you're putting an application or something in the cloud, it, it, they, they're not hands off anymore?
2: Uh, I, th- I absolutely think they do understand that. I mean, between you know what used to be FISMA and all the new OMB regulations on you know, as, an, as an owner, uh, you know an agency is owning that data. they're still responsible. So even though they may have moved uh, the servicing of that data into into the cloud, you know they still need to make sure that that cloud provider meets all the all the you know auditing and security requirements that are required by the NIST framework, um, and that you know how they handle that is all you know documented and that they're following the proper procedures. So they definitely understand that they're that they're not absolved of it, uh, but there's you know there's still that little mindset of. Well, maybe I don't need to do this part. It's like, no, no, you, you may not be actually doing it, but you're still responsible to make sure that it gets done on your behalf.
1: And I think that's key. It gets done, not just you, if you're not hands off, but you're saying to IBM, we'll pick on you, Dr. Thompson, again, show me where you're doing this. Report to me every week, every day, every every hour, that whatever is happening is happening. I think that's part of it. Um, one of the, the, the themes we've talked about through this discussion so far is the people side, it's come up in every one of the segments. So let's maybe go down that path a little, little deeper. And, and Dr. Thompson, one of the things that I think every organization is facing is what are the right skill sets and do we have the right skill sets? And, and if not, where do we find them to manage the cyber threat hunting, to do the cyber threat hunting? What's IBM's experience? How are you guys addressing the skill set challenges?
3: I mean, skill set challenges today is just, you know, in all different dimensions. Specific in cybersecurity, we know there are millions of jobs cannot be filled today. And so the challenge of, you know, identifying the right set of skill sets, including hard skill sets and soft skill sets are critically important. The traditional concept in terms of hiring folks based on their degrees is no longer applicable. And this is why in IBM we have PTAC, Path to Technology you know, as our our corporate initiative, we're hiring folks, do not have the degrees, you know, and help, you know, create a structure, technology, training, and soft skills training to bring them up to speed so they can fill this sort of big void of our talent uh, resources in today's industries. For cybersecurity specifically, because if you would agree with me, cybersecurity is a new term. And so the household, you know, don't have that term. So the parents are not encouraging their their children to pursue cybersecurity degrees. And this is why we have a great shortage. In addition, there's a diversity issue. There are only less than 20% of the cyber workforce today are women. And so think about the diversity of thinking. And we also, you know, the panel was talking about how greatly needed the cyber professional really to have the very diverse, Background to understand the entire ecosystem. And so in IBM, we even have Cyber Day for girls and to be able to really promote cybersecurity for the young girls in the middle schools and in the, in the, in the younger uh, uh, um, um, age. In addition to that, STEM, right? STEM today, we are promoting engineering science. Cyber should be also part of it.
1: We'd have to ruin the acronym. I don't know, that STEC or something, but um, and get rid of math. But let, let me ask you a little bit about the skill set that's needed. Ben, when you guys are looking to hire people to do the threat hunting, what's the skill set today that's needed that maybe wasn't needed five years ago or ten years ago?
4: So I think uh, most of those skill sets have remained consistent, okay? So you've got a, a, you need to have a firm foundation in technology you need to understand networks, you need to understand how computers work, how those types of things function. But one of the unique things that, that we look for when we're hiring people is actually what we call an investigative mindset. So the ability to pick out an anomaly and then have that urge to dive down into it to figure out why it's there, what it's doing, how it got there, and uh, what the result is on the, as it influences the investigation. So, do you, test, w-
1: do you test people as they come into your for an interview? <laughs> do you give them like a puzzle and, and see who just solves the puzzle versus who uh, I,
4: I don't know <laughs> that I, that don't I wanna, shake, instead, but let me see ben. I, I don't know that I want to give away all our interview secrets. Oh, okay. But yeah. um, I will tell you that um, some of the questions we ask are not just about technology. Um, we ask a question about what, is, what do you do in your off time, okay? And then based on that question, you know, what TV shows do you watch, right? <laughs> and, you know, that gives us clues into how the uh, person's mind functions if they're big into NCIS and some of those detective shows, <laughs> and you know that they've got this natural curiosity. They like to get to the root of a problem, for example. Um, so it's not just about, you know, what uh, what does the uh, slash 24 subnet um, depict, right? It's a, It's also about is this going to be the person who's going to be able to have the, the independence and the curiosity and the knowledge base to answer those tough, complex questions that are asymmetric in nature?
1: Just real quick, tell us the story uh, at break. You were talking about uh, someone you hired and her background. Uh, it, was it, was yeah,
2: it was Dylan. Yeah, so um, one of the best analysts I ever hired. Um, so she, she was a government employee doing traditional human counterintelligence. Um, but her first job out of school was uh, working for a private investigator and she was just like Ben uh, described, you know, that investigative mindset. You sat down you know, working through a problem, she was like a dog on a bone. She, didn't, she kept asking the question why until she couldn't ask the question why anymore and it's like that's perfect. She knew very little about computers and like I can teach computers. I can teach technology. I can teach you that whole background, but you can't teach that natural curiosity to just keep going and and be not satisfied until you get that answer. And those are the best people for this job.
1: And and Mark, this comes around to this idea of you don't need to hire cybersecurity experts. There's plenty of people who are getting hired or maybe could be really good candidates to do this type of hunting, this type of, of response. If they have not just math degrees and computer science degrees, but soci- so sociology degrees or psychology degrees. Are you finding, as you're interviewing people, that you're looking from a broader swath of, of, of educated?
0: Very much so, um, and, it, and it's all about, I think we, we're just talking about diversity of thought, diversity of perspective. Um, one of the areas that I think we see that most often, aside from bringing in candidates to interview, is, is we've been very involved in the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. Uh, Raytheon sponsors that, that competition and has for a number of years. And that's something I think that we see every year there is uh, not only really great diversity of thought, but also a lack of bias. So if you haven't been in the industry for a long time, um, you know, and built up kind of a lot of preconceived notions, particularly in threat hunting, where you, you're making a lot of assumptions, maybe you're not even even aware of that. If you're coming from a different background, or maybe you don't have as much experience uh, in that line of work, um, it's really great to see some of the creativity that people bring to the job. Um, and, and the lack of bias and it kind of frees them up to to think creatively, kind of think outside the box, uh, you know, question why, uh, where maybe a more experienced analyst might not always do that. So
1: I had an interview just recently with the National Security Agency regarding their Codebreaker Challenge, and it's a fascinating uh, effort because once you solve one, you have to solve the next, and that leaves you a clue to the next. So you can't really, you have to solve them in some ways in, in, in order, but you sometimes can skip around a little bit, but you can't get to the final, and so you solve them all. And uh, I got to talk to one of the students about it, and he happened to be a computer science major, but the fact is, he was like, yeah, I was into cybersecurity, and then boom, now I'm into cyber. I think, are you, are you Dr. Thompson, talk a little bit about when you guys are hiring at IBM, What, what type of people are you bringing into the PTAC program or just what types of skill sets are you looking for for a cyber hunt?
3: So, you know, like I say, the great shortage in this area, we actually are leveraging many different means. And so PTAC is one program. We also have cyber apprentice program. We then also have the traditional hiring, uh, you know, as, as a, 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 a means to it. Having said all that, I think we also have epithet, uh test to test people <laughs> in terms of their cyber uh, 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 skill sets. And I think the very important thing here is that we say cyber skill sets. As of today, I have not seen the fine definition of what is the true cyber skill sets. Because my belief here is that to be a be a strong cybersecurity professional, like what you are saying here, is really going to have the investigative mindset, but also require very diverse backgrounds. So we do a lot of cross training. We train people with cybersecurity skill sets. They are cloud engineer. They are you know data scientist. They are the so-called web designers. And I think what we are saying here is that today's cyber, program, cyber problem is really reside into, in your digital enterprise on every element. And so if your, your workforce had the most diverse background, you tended to be able to be most powerful, most effective. And so in IBM, we're doing a lot of so-called cross-training, as well as really raising the awareness of the security Hygiene, if you would, and then you know, employ AI, machine learning to help folks to understand how they can take that technology into cybersecurity domain, if you would.
1: This has just been a great conversation. We're just about out of time, but I just want to give the panel go down the panel one last time and and ask the question of. A lot of agencies as they're listening to this, a lot of other organizations as they're listening to this are going, well, I'm already doing some of that or I'm, I, I have to get started and do more of it. What advice or what, what are some of the potholes you would say, please avoid? We've talked about some of them, but it, let, let me maybe throw it to Mark since we started on uh, with, with Dylan on the other side of the table earlier. What are some of the, 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 the things you would recommend or advice you'd give?
0: I think one of the things that we see most often that we haven't really talked about today is when we're talking about threat hunting or instant response, what does success look like? How do you know it's done? And I think that's an area where no matter who you're talking to, um, there tends to be the most disagreement uh, on the answer. And I think the reason for that is it it depends on your organization, and it really comes down to what are your goals for security? What's your um, business model? How do you generate value? What is your threat model? These are fundamental questions uh, in answering that larger question of how do we know we're done? How do we know we're successful with an instant response or with a hunting program? And so that's, uh, I think that's one kind of key thing that people miss is asking some of those initial questions uh, to get to that larger goal.
1: Unfortunately, a lot of times people go, success is no attacks. And, and as Ben said, it's not a matter of when, it's a matter of, uh, uh, it's not a matter of if, if, it's a matter of when. So do you, do you, how do you help them understand what success looks like? Is it, is it tracking down in a certain amount of time under five minutes, under, under
0: 20 minutes? What, what is it? I think really it just comes down to identifying what measures you want to use. Um, and I think no matter what, as long as you have some measures that you can kind of put a stake in the ground, um, you know, that's a good starting point. And then showing how you can improve over time. So you, know, you talk about time-based metrics. Pick a time, if it's an hour, if it's a day, if it's a week. Um, but then measure that over time and make sure that you're improving that and going the direction that you want to go. Dr. Thompson?
3: Well, I think the cyber hunting and incident response is a team sports I think that's the key thing. And so when the government employ any services associated with it, I think we've got to really look into several things. One is open architecture. You know, you know, stay away from proprietaryism. And as an example, IBM Cloud, employ the open architecture, open, uh, you know, stay away from the proprietary type of approach. That will allowing a better integration, better collaboration, if you would, first of all. Second of all here is when you employ the different services, such as cloud services, do look into, now your ecosystem is different, so your concept of operation has to change. As an example, when I say team sports, is who is doing what? What is, what is the responsibility of the racy relationship? That's second. Thirdly here is that, you know, often folks are looking at LPTA type of uh, procurement. cybersecurity. what you buy is what you get. And, you know, as, as far as we understand the complexity of the problems, the shortage of the talent, you know, lowest price is not gonna work. And so I think that is an area that we really need to look into our acquisition and making sure that we stay away from this LPTA type of acquisition.
4: Uh, Well, This has been
1: been a great conversation. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. So uh, first, uh, let me thank my guests. Ben Cotton, the President, CEO, and Founder of SciTech Services. Mark Orlando, the Chief Technology Officer for Cyber Protection Solutions at Raytheon. Dylan Owen, Senior Manager for Cyber Services at Raytheon, and Dr. Shu-Jane Thompson, Vice President and Partner for Cyber and Biometrics Practice at IBM. Thank you so much for your time. I'm Jason Miller. You've been listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Raytheon.
5: Thank
0: you for listening to the panel discussion, Every Side of Cyber, Building a Nation-Scale Quick Reaction Force. Sponsored by Raytheon on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.